This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You're stuck with us now for an hour. In the studio uh, with me, I have... Uh, Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Hi. I'm going to quote. Sorry, I'm just going to quote you something you said a moment ago because I think everyone should hear it. <laughs> I have no problem with discomfort. That's right, but not, not when I'm on air. Thanks, boys. Is that because you were sitting to next to Chris? Side, yeah. I'm just yeah. going to swivel to the other side of the studio. I think. Uh, Chris KP. Good you? morning. You Hi. well, pal. I'm very good, very good. Did I was wondering which quote you were going to use then? Well, so there was, was quite I. A few. There were a few. Dr. Jenny yeah. has been uh, quite quotable this morning. Yeah, she's in. She's in a bit of a mood. I, I'm not sure what's going on, but um, anyway, we like it. It makes the show more colourful. Um, but the the language you used earlier, it's a family program, Dr. Jen. You're right. just going to have to rein just rein it in a tad. Sure, you can I still can use do that. shit. Like you can use that, but the other okay. the other words. No, Excuse me, no, my no. children are just over there, Dr. Shane. So uh... they're, not, they're not listening. <laughs> they're outside the studio. They're in the green room. That's true. They're entertaining the guests. Uh, we have we have four guests today on the show, which is going to be really interesting. Um, and we have a lot of news for you as well. Chris KP, we might start off with you, if you're ready. I'm always ready. Uh, <laughs> <I, laughs> oh, there was another quote yes, in yes, yes. <laughs> well, let, let, let me ask you this, both of, both of you. Uh, you no. know, in, in a nutshell, <laughs> that, that's the wrong answer. Because <laughs> the question is, how's 2016 been for you? Uh, absolutely awesome. So it's been pretty good, Dr. Shane? Uh, quick. Yes, mm. you it's, it's, it. gone, it's gone very fast. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I find, and you know, I guess a lot of our, our listeners out there might be feeling this too. As you get older, yes, you become yes. more um, okay with the fact that things are not always going your way. Okay, yes. so you're content. Yeah, I'm more content than and previous years. That's okay. The reason I raise this is because, and that's good news. If you'd said absolutely awful, like I've had a miserable <laughs> year, seriously, <laughs> I have bad news for you. But because you've been at least content, if not awesome, I have good news for well, you. I'm, I'm happy to change my story if it. No, helps. no, no. This is great. That's what I wanted. I would hate to be the the harbinger, harbinger or harbinger? I never get that right. Harbinger. harbinger. Thank you. Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to be the bringer of, um, of, <laughs> of bad news. The good news for you guys, given the year, is that it's going to be one second longer. Oh, oh yeah. Awesome. I heard that. They have recently announced uh, that uh, that because the, well, the, cause the Earth is actually rotating slower than it used to. It's actually slowing down, yeah, yeah. essentially, yeah. Um, in, in, its, in its orbit, rather, it's slowing down. Um, and... The thing is, this is a choice we make. Every now mm. and then, uh, if we decide that we're out of whack enough, and basically it's, I think it's like less than a second, put nine of a second mm. or something, mm. right? And they go, oh no, that's no good, we're out of whack with, uh, with, with time. We have to sort of change it. But that is a change, that's a choice we make. We could choose no, we'll because just be out of whack. What would happen in the long run if we didn't? I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> if, if we did, if we stopped doing this. So there's been For 26. For years. Well, well nearly. Yeah. So there's been, <laughs> since 1972 or thereabouts, there's been 26 occasions uh, where we've decided to know we've decided to add a second to time. So this year, when I mean, your clock clicks over midnight on, on the 31st, it'll go 58, 59, 60. And then it'll go to the start but of the year. This this strategy for me is yep. a bit concerning. Yeah. Happy, uh, hang on. Hey, yeah, happy New Year. How's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that doing it at midnight? Aren't the good they? news is that most people who, at happy at midnight 
won't notice that level of precision <laughs> just partly because I've been drinking um, yeah, yeah. but also just generally you wouldn't notice but yes I hear what you're saying you, it's, you know what it's stammer yeah yeah totally. why, why yeah. not add it in at you know 7.45 no one's going to notice yeah. yes. who it's, cares well it's like um, it's like daylight saving 2 in the morning yes. Three in the morning. yes I agree that's a, that's a lot of effort to try and get your clock you know at correct time if you're going to sit there and try and you know play with it to the point of having a I second agree. difference and, and this is the crazy thing mm. if we just said <clears> no enough of this this is silly we're fiddling around the edges be done with it by 20 by, by 2700 yep um, we'd be behind by about 30 minutes now that is a problem yeah <laughs> i mean we'd have to do none of this for the next <laughs> 700 years and then we'll be out by half an can hour I, can i make one slight <laughs> potentially pessimistic comment though Please. i think those generations who are going to come after us mm-hmm. are going to be a little bit more concerned about some of our other lack of action that's right then they are going to be about us having not added a second i don't know they are really <laughs> tuning into these <laughs> smartphones and if there was a couple of seconds missing then that could be a problem for them. But that's what I find interesting. I find mm. it, it's actually very interesting for me that you, we sort of go, yeah, we've decided mm. to let an authority of perfectly august, intelligent, educated people decide to change time. Mm. Yeah. And yet we are far more resistant to allowing equally educated, august, intelligent mm. people <laughs> to do anything, to do anything about, about far... a whole number of things. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm fine, obviously. far greater risk to yes. us. Yes, yes, exactly. It's an interesting comparison, though, isn't it? With it the, it's intriguing. And, you know, yeah. we, we do... Um, Oh, uh, it's it's longer that the year's longer than you said it was. Well, you're a scientist. You <laughs> must be right. I'll go with it. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, what it's just weird. Pumping the shit into the river is bad. Oh, come on. I'll loosen up. Come on. <laughs> you know, seriously. <laughs> we believed on the time Tree thing, hugger. but now you're just going too far. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've had of everything. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's because it causes nobody any strife to change their <clears throat> clock by a second, but it causes them a lot of strife to be told that their entire lifestyle is unsustainable and needs to change. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that is grim. <laughs> and to be fair, some of these people don't know what time of day it is anyway so you know that's right yeah anyway well very good well, <laughs> well, the, uh, well we will i mean unfortunately we're not on air at you know around new year's but we'll try and build to the excitement in the weeks before that before we oh, go yeah. off onto the break for the summer whoever's on graveyard shift that night oh, we need yeah. to make yeah, sure that's an moment, that they point <laughs> out and here it's coming it's coming it's coming and now and now. <laughs> there it is. And you're done. Yep, moving on. Well, there was a... Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, Pleasure. There was um, someone's trying to work out how to put this into everyone's software somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, well, out. that is the big scary Yeah, because yeah. there's, there's a software engineer going, you, you what? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> how do we do that? Y2K, Y2K, all over again. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? Well, I want to, you know, skip along a garden path and talk about birds and bees and flowers. Oh, can we do that? Yeah, we can do that. Change the a little bit. But no, it's actually a bad news story. Sorry. So Ooh. we've heard lots about um, the poor bees, you know, and how much strife bees are in with colony collapse disorder where all of a sudden most of the worker bees just completely disappear. And we know there's lots of pesticides we're using that are a massive problem for bees and there's parasites and climate change and blah, blah, blah. Basically, the bees mm, are mm. in strife. And they're fairly important because it's not just honey. They pollinate all of our crops. Mm. So one estimate is that a third of all of our food worldwide, <coughs> excuse me, depends on bees. So that's pretty full on. And this research just came out this week out of Penn State University showing that there's yet another problem, and that is that a lot of the common air pollution that's around us, even at really moderate levels, so EPA defined moderate levels that we should actually uh, or we're not really you know we're not reacting to for any other reason mm. is interfering with the chemicals that flowers release in their scent so oh, you know flowers wow. release scent which we think is very lovely we pick flowers we put them on our kitchen bench but mm. that scent is how bees find the flowers so this scent actually coming out of a flower and going down 
and wind is vital for bees to find the flower. Right. And particularly something like ozone actually changes the chem- chemical composition of the flower so scent. This, this is like noise. Yeah, exactly. Like it's noise. like noise. So this scent, so this lovely, a picture of this lovely flower sitting there, normally it would have however many parts per billion of this scent that's going out, mm. flowing out downwind, creating this beautiful scentscape that the bees tune into mm. and find their flowers. You introduce ozone into the system and the scent A doesn't last nearly as long and B doesn't travel nearly as far. Mm. So they've been looking at these bees and they go out into the environment and they're confused because they just can't find the flowers. Mm. So it takes them much longer to find the flowers and when they do find them it takes them much longer to actually um, do the foraging they need to to get the pollen. So question... Oh, you go first. I was going to say, so would it be useful? I know this is not going to happen, so work with me, but... You know, when, when the EPA, for example, or whatever authority defines limits and acceptable limits of stuff, they've got presumably some way, some reason for doing that. There's a health impact at this point or the likelihood of a health yeah, impact. Yeah, there's thresholds. Yeah. yeah. So would it be useful for them to say, well, maybe we should think, given that, you know, a third or whatever it is, amount of, of food that we need to survive depends upon these animals, yeah. maybe that would be a guide. Yeah to mm. a useful threshold. So it's a bees level yeah. threshold rather than a human level yeah. threshold mm. which will we're so drastically far down the chain. change yeah. the air pollution levels we can live with. But if you think about it, if a bee then has to spend X additional amount of time out there trying to find flowers, they've got the uh, equivalent less amount of time to do all the other activities they need to do which when you're mm. a social animal and you live in a group in a hive, there's actually a it lot matters. of stuff yeah. you have to do. That busy time little is bees. a big deal. Hence, busy hence little busy bees. bees. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a big it's, it's interesting to me one of the things I think it gives you an idea of how quickly and rapidly we're making some of these changes. Is, you know, when you're talking about inter- insects where there's, there's many generations over a relatively short period of time, you'd think, well, won't they adapt to this? Mm. But mm. they're not. Um, which, well, which means either, either they're not capable of that sort of adaptation or we're just doing this sort of stuff too fast and they yeah. can't keep up. And well, I, I, mean, I don't I guess, know which one it is. I guess they are adapting. I mean, they're still finding pollen. They're still mm. making honey. They're still pollinating, but just at so much lower yeah. levels. Well, the other question is, are the Plants, are the plants otherwise. adapting? Because if they're not being pollinated, then that, there's, there's a reproductive imperative imper- imper- on them. Yeah. Like and that's what interests me. Will yeah. flowers therefore <laughs> up the ante on how much scent is being produced, or will we actually see different forms of scent molecules that aren't interacti- interacting mm. with ozone and things? I mean, it's fascinating. Or different population cross-sections, because yeah. you've just got, you've got yeah. you know, different plants that can do this and some that yeah. can't. Yeah. Mm. All right, you two, calm down. You could talk about this stuff all day. I mean, I, I find the bee thing just... You know, it's extraordinary, and there's been some great films about this problem yeah. over the last couple of years. And um, it, it's it's one of those things where it, it should be on everyone's radar as a what I call you know a holy crap thing. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. if this yeah. collapses, yeah. nothing else We're will matter. Yes. <laughs> like, we are absolutely yeah. cactus, and, yeah. and and that could happen. You know, so mm. anyway, uh, Sunday morning, folks, we don't want to you know wreck <laughs> your day. Um, but I, I do actually, in terms of biology, though, here's some. Um, I'm going to call this a good news story, even though in one sense it's not. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, in one sense, it depends who you are. If you're a biologist, this is a great news story. Okay. Well, we'll if let you know. If you're an archaeologist, <laughs> if you're an archaeologist, this story sucks. Just okay. to just to paint the picture <clears throat> for all our listeners, we have a physicist on one side of the table, <laughs> and across a rather large and expansive and wide bench, we have two biologists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bench is getting wider by the minute. Um, 
Now, uh, you may remember back in 2003, there was a big, uh, a big story actually about a, one, just off one of the Greek islands of Zakynthos, um, because they found all this, uh, what appeared to be components of an ancient city of some type. Mm. And, you know, just below the ocean, you know, really amazing, um, features and things. And it was, it was exciting and so forth. And, uh, there's a guy named Julian Andrews who's been studying this. He's a, he's actually a geochemist. And the reason he's been studying it, because there's this, it's sort of item or items that are missing from this site. Whenever you find any sort of city, there's usually, you know, people eat. So there's bowls, mm. <laughs> there's pottery, there's stuff. Yeah. And there's no stuff. Right. Absolutely no stuff at all. Like, no stuff, as in zero stuff. So there's the Stuff all. Stuff all. Um, <laughs> as in thank stuff you, was plundered? Well, so here's a question. Did yes. someone go around on the bottom of the ocean and pick up every lazy little bit of pottery and take it away and just clean this place find, out? You can't find good help like that. Not, yeah, <laughs> not an easy task. Or is there something else going on here? And it, it's a fascinating story because what um, what Julian Andrews of England's University of East Anglia and his colleagues have been doing is they've been looking at these so-called ruins and collecting samples and trying to work out what's going on. And what they've found is that this so-called lost city um, that, that was um, described actually is not a lost city at all. It was built by microbes. Yeah. Wow. Not real. Wow, that's Hello. so cool. These particular microbes nice. um, around the bottom of the ocean and as, you know, uh, methane and so forth come up, they absorb this methane, you know, they consume this mm-hmm. methane and they basically release these sort of um, remains, you know, excrete, excretions. Um, and these things get fossilised over time and they actually have formed these specific shapes around where these that's methane so cool. oh, um, so cool. exits have been. And so, you know, they, I mean, you look, I'm holding up for everyone to see. That's <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> kind of looks like yeah. a UFO's land on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. It's kind of this round, beautiful round structure with various, you know, like yeah. plates on top of one another. Yeah, it's another quite intricate. It looks like it's... Yeah, someone built it. Yeah, um, yes. And, uh, no. <laughs> Microbes. This is, some, this is so, worrying me. It's sounding a bit like the creation argument. <laughs> Who yeah, designed it? Like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no one designed this one, folks. This was, um, this is basically a group of underwater formations made by microbes that have these mm. incredible structures. And we see structures, amazing structures in nature all the time. Mm. But the, yeah, exactly. But the idea of seeing them <laughs> the bottom of the ocean in this way mm. um, in areas where we expect to find old cities and so forth that have yeah. been submerged um, is fascinating and so it's taken three years to work out that this is sadly for the archaeologists not an ancient <laughs> Greek city yeah, no, not Atlantis. <laughs> um, it's just the excrement of some microbes. Well, how can they prove that there weren't aliens living there? Oh, really? You know, alien microbes. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you two are on top of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a minute with our first guest for today. You're listening to 3RRR. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're a science program, and here's some tunes. Three. Yeah, you're listening to Triple R, folks. We're back. It's uh, a nice track there if you enjoyed it. It was uh, Calexico with Falling from the Sky. In the studio now with us is Dr. John Lescu, who is a lecturer and research fellow in the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. John, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you here. You, you work in an area where I have to say, you know, my colleagues and I were getting pretty excited during the break, and I almost nodded off. Um, be- <laughs> well, no, no, because because sleep is important to all of us, and you work on sleep in the animal kingdom and what's happening there. Now, this is something I don't think people would really have thought about 
how you study sleep traditionally um, with with animals. I mean, how is that normally done? Yeah, I think when people think about sleep, they use their own experiences with it. So they picture something going to sleep, laying down, mm. and it's this profound behavioral shutdown. But in addition to being this behavioral shutdown, it's also associated with these remarkable changes in brain activity. Yep. And you mentioned you measure these changes through the electroencephalogram which just measures brain waves. Yep. So conceptually, this is very similar to an EKG, if you had ever had heart work done. Mm. You know, but instead of putting those electrodes over your cardiac muscle, they put them on top of your head to measure brain activity. Yeah. So this is the way we go about measuring sleep in humans, but then also in other animals as well. I, I always found it funny. A friend of mine recently sent me a picture of herself in one of these sleep labs with a comment, apparently I'm supposed to go to sleep with this on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how do you get people and animals in particular to go to sleep with all this stuff all over them? Exactly. So this is a really <coughs> un, unnatural situation, right, for mm. humans to either be in a, a human sleep lab or in the case of non-human animals that are in a sleep research study. They're often, you know, a mouse or a rat in a small box mm. and then they probably have like a cable tether coming off of their yeah. head that's leading to a, a, a polygraph, right, this right. electroencephalogram. And, you know, I, I think sleep evolved in the wild. It, it, that's its natural situation. And so if we want to get a comprehensive understanding of what sleep does and the ecological relevance of sleep in the lives of animals, we need to study sleep where it evolved. And that's mm-hmm. taking technology into the wild. Yeah. Which is just so, such a fundamental point. And yet oh, it yeah, seems to yeah. have been missed for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, sleep is just this thing. It happens. And as long as we can induce it somehow, we can measure it. But we have no way of knowing if it's the same thing. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and the, the other thing I find you, you mentioned before, and I find this curious, is that we tend to look at every other species on the planet as sleeping just like us. Mm. But um, uh, there was a story we did a couple of weeks back about a particular bird that can fly for, you know, I don't know, 30 Ever. days. <laughs> yeah, pretty much forever. And I said, well, you know, at some stage, and assuming during during flight, there's some kind of sleep there. You know, there, there, there has to be, right? I mean, do, I mean, how much variation is there from one species to the next so in s- terms of sleep? So sleep has been studied in lots of different animals, lots of different vertebrates, but then even some invertebrates like fruit flies and mm-hmm. uh, honeybees and things like this. And our understanding is that all species that have been studied so far sleep. Okay. Okay. So yeah. it seems to be some biological imperative that you do every night on a nightly basis. Now, in the case of uh, birds living in a rather extreme environment and, and being, you know, flying on the wing for mm. you know days, days weeks or yeah. longer yeah. like swifts uh frigate yep. birds uh, yeah yeah frigate birds are the ones i think we talked about yeah yeah that can't land on the water they're seabirds yeah. but they can't land on the water because mm. they don't produce a preen oil so they just become waterlogged and drowned so they're well motivated not to uh <laughs> not, to <laughs> land. not to land you know yeah. Yeah. and uh things like bar-tailed godwit that are here in australia but they fly above the arctic circle over 13 days and they do that flight non-stop So what are these birds doing? We actually don't know. Presumably they are sleeping on the wing. It's possible perhaps that they also stop sleeping during this time. Mm. We we have no idea. Now now let's take a step back just to humans and large mammals for a moment. I mean, I mean, why do we sleep, John? I mean, what's, what happens when we sleep? I mean, I know what happens if I don't. (laughs) You don't want to be (laughs) around. We all know that, John. But but what's, I mean, what is the, the evolutionary sort of purpose? How did we get to the point where we need to damn well sleep for six to eight hours a day or increase? 
Chris KP's case, 14. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of different ideas on why we sleep, and all of these ideas are well-supported, suggesting that sleep serves multiple functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the types of functions that sleep serves is memory processing, uh, some changes that are going on in the brain called synaptic plasticity, that when you learn, your brain becomes more interconnected. During sleep, it becomes less interconnected, resetting the brain for another day okay. of learning. Um, neurological functions tend to be the basis for most uh, hypotheses for the function of sleep. Sleep mm-hmm. is for the brain, not for the body. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about going out into the, the natural world and, and looking at sleep in that context, this is where your work has been uh, driving things. The idea of these micro-loggers or looking at uh, sleep, how, how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you actually go out and, and instead of having this big sleep lab where you might hook up some small animal, I'm not sure how you do that, how do you translate that into the natural environment with all the, the difficulties associated with them just foraging and doing the things they normally do. There's been a remarkable miniaturization of technology in the last decade. So once when we had these gigantic amplifiers and polygraphs, now we have mm. things the size about of your thumbnail that we can then put onto the backs or the heads of animals and allow them to sleep in the wild. So you have to catch the animal in the first instance and then equip it with these sensors that are not unlike the sensors you would use in a human sleep study, uh, usually attaching them with super glue, and mm-hmm. then uh, release them back into the wild. And then they are allowed to uh, to behave freely during this time and then you recatch them to download the data. Okay, so you have to recatch them. And how much data can you collect? I mean, how long are they out there with this before you have to, you know, yeah. grab them and, and, and pull out whatever data has been collected? You can get this for two or three weeks continuously during this time. So theoretically, this would be a, a long enough duration that you could capture the migration of things like bar-tailed godwood in their flights to right. Alaska. Yeah, wow. So, so just to combine that with, um, with Shane's earlier comment, um, I, I did a sleep test many years ago and had that same experience of this doesn't feel right with a thing wired to my head in a room with fluorescent lights and blah, 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 blah and all People that. People watching you. People watching me. Oh, that's you know, normal. Many of them scientists. Um, <laughs> that, that was all, <laughs> so that was odd. So who were the non-scientists? <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't my lab. I'm just just fa- family members who Fans. said, yeah, he's a freak. Look at him. Sleep groupies. Oh, I actually sold tickets. I made quite a good one. <laughs> I hope I was uh, entertaining enough. Um, but, so if you if you attach this to a bird or whatever else um, and it goes out, when you're looking at the data, you know, when it comes back and you're looking at that data set, do you see, is there any kind of adjustment from when they've been captured or just because they're wearing a weird thing on their head? Is it, do you see that in the data? So the animals that we've deployed this on so far handle this remarkably well. So we went up to Alaska a couple of years ago and we're working with a bird that's found around here, the pectoral sandpiper. It's a small wader and they breed under continuous daylight in the high Arctic. Mm. Their breeding season is about three weeks. So when they so arrive... They breed, they breed with the lights on? Yeah, the lights right. are on, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they have, to, uh, they have to, to mate with as many females as possible during this very short period. So there's intense male-male competition, whereas females are interested in scrutinizing each male closely because mm. she's only going to mate with one male during yes. this short season. And uh, when we implanted the animals with these uh, EEG sensors for recording brain activity, we had several individuals that were then out caught mating with females the following day, so mm. they didn't seem to be at all bothered by this <laughs> at all. You know, they weren't scratching at their back or anything. And, like and compared to a lot of the technology, like for, you know, I spent years radio tracking kangaroos yes. and possums and things. I mean, the sort of sensor you're talking about is, con- is minuscule compared mm. to the standard radio collar, which mm. animals wear for years at a time mm. and, and to all, to our absolute best understanding from years and decades of study don't have any effect on their behavior. So this is, mm. you know, mm. they probably don't even know it's there. 
Yeah, and at the very least, it certainly is better than your experience in the sleep and, lab. And could you use it on humans? <laughs> could it, could it, to what could it replace the traditional EEG thing? Yeah, and in fact, much of the, so your experiences with the sleep lab some years ago would probably be quite different today. Now mm. there already is a much smaller wireless technologies that are being used Excellent. in them. Um, so human sleep studies can often be done in the person's house, allowing a much mm. more natural yeah. environment, and then you avoid the first night effect of that yeah. weird yeah. sleep, yeah. this fragmented sleep because of the novel recording environment. Mm. So when when you, you go out and you look at the um, animals in their, their sort of natural environment, and w- what sort of surprises have you found there? Because presumably there's quite a difference in what you would see. I mean, there may be some, for example aspects to sleep that but previously we said well you know this is weird because they're in the lab but are there things like that that you found where some animals are just really unusual in the way they sleep yeah so the way we currently think of sleep is that this is something you have to do on a daily basis and if you Mm. don't do it you suffer when you're awake subsequently you know you have reduced performance your memory is impaired you have reduced attention motivation you just feel pretty horrible generally (laughs) and yet when we worked on these sandpipers up in alaska Mm. the surprising thing is that the males that slept the least and what I mean by least is that they were virtually sleepless for up to three weeks, sleeping very, very little per 24-hour day. Hmm. Um, and yet those males were the ones that were best able to convince females that she should mate with them. And then they ultimately sired the highest number of chicks that was confirmed through DNA analysis. Did they the just chicks. look a bit more rugged? You know, <laughs> unshaven? <laughs> we, we think that the females were actually um, s- sort of sizing up males based on their ability to sustain, to, to, yeah, to yeah, handle yeah, this. And this was yeah. like a, a thing that males could could yeah, really boast yeah. about saying, Whereas the one that's sort of over on the side of the yeah. ice just had a quick hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nah, no good. You snooze, you lose. Was there, yeah. a, was there any follow-up, though, on mortality? Do we know whether it takes a long-term toll? Like, obviously, having massive reproductive success in the short term, that's what it's all about. But do we know whether they then suffered, you know, reduced lifespan or health or compromised immune system or anything as a result of having done that many all-nighters in so, a row? Yeah. <laughs> so we have we have some, some insight in that this was a multi-year study, so we did have okay. recapture of males in subsequent years and we found that if a male was successful one year super active one year able to mate with many females he was more likely to come back to that area and again be super wow. active and mm. mate with more females now supermen that, supermen mm. yeah, absolutely. Cool now, john um just finally i mean this this presumably changes the whole way in which this field operates because you know in in many regards what's been done before is kind of tainted is this is this a reset of the field i think i think w- what we have here is a very complex complementary paradigm here that uh, that there is certainly value in conducting sleep research in the laboratory environment if you need tightly controlled situations to compare mm-hmm. uh, treatment from deviations from a baseline sure. that's yep. very valuable but complementary to that is studying sleep in the ecological context in which sleep evolved. Yeah, look, it's great stuff. It's very exciting and I think whenever you hear about these these new technologies being used to, to really see how animals are interacting and, and doing things in the wild, in the natural environment, that's where we really start to learn some cool stuff. John, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and uh, good luck. I hope you're, uh, you're tagging as many of these <laughs> little guys as you can, learning as much <laughs> as you can because it, it is really an area where I think our, our human prejudice as to what this should be like has has blinded us for a while in terms of uh, just how complicated this situation can be for many species. So thanks so much. Thanks very much. Dr John Lescu is a lecturer and research fellow at the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe University. We'll take a break for some music, folks. We'll be back in just a moment uh, with another guest. Well, a lot of guests today. It's going to be good. Three. Triple. Ah. 
Uh, we're back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. If you're wondering what that track was, it was by Lion Hair, and it was called Dangerous Happiness. It's always dangerous. Be careful. Uh, anyway, in the studio, we have our second guest for today, Dr. Ben McLean. He is from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. Ben, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, you're working on stars, which uh, I guess a lot of people are working on, but um, in particular, the idea that there's a certain group of stars that are supposed to live a certain amount of time, and for some weird reason, they're dying prematurely. Correct. Um, first of all, Let's talk about the instrumentation, because I understand you guys have got some new stuff. What, what's happening there? What, what do you use? So there's a telescope out in Coonabrunabran called the AAT. It's the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Mm-hmm. It's the, the biggest in Australia. It's four metres in diameter. Yep. Um, it's sort of like the the leading Australian telescope. It's the one that um, it's the biggest one, the one that gets the best uh, data. Um, we've recently put a an instrument on there called Hermes. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a spectrograph. So it, it's able to do uh, spectroscopy of, of stars mostly. It splits up the light into into its component wavelengths and, and colours, and we're able to um, do a lot of science that way. Okay. Um, it's very uh, very new instrument that's um, very groundbreaking. It's it's able to observe 400 stars at a time, um, whereas recently with that telescope, we're only able to do one. Well, you know, you always look back at the work you've done in the past and you realize how much of your life you've wasted yeah. looking at two stars. Yeah. Whilst yeah. Uh, in the following week, you know, you spent three years looking at two stars and then you spend a week looking at exactly. 400 kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's amazing. So in, you said you, you use spectroscopy. So mm-hmm. what, what sort of information can you get from this instrument from 400 stars at a time? I mean, what, what sort of mm-hmm. data are you actually pulling out with the well, light? To start off with, what I'm able to do is I'm able to find out how fast the stars are moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use redshift, Doppler shift, uh, to find out how fast the stars are moving towards or away from us. Um, so that's the, the first step. We're able to um, determine what kind of star they are, how big they are, what temperature they are, um, how much... Um, and then uh, the main work I'm doing is uh, to figure out how much of each chemical is in the star right. um, using uh, absorption lines. So they, so the star has um, certain chemicals in its atmosphere which um, absorbs certain wavelengths of light. We're able to see those in the data um, and we're able to figure out how much iron, how much sodium, how much oxygen these stars have, hmm. um, which is a very important tracer of uh, their evolution, where they came from, um, when they were born, that kind of thing. Oh, that's cool. So, now, you've been looking at one of the clusters in our own galaxy, the yep. M- M4 cluster, yep. one of my perfect personal favourites, actually. <laughs> mine too. Oh, look, mine too, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's oh, close yeah. and it's bloody bright. If Who's you've got a telescope, it's you know, an amphorbian. if you're an amateur astronomer and you know those of you out there who are ones, you'll know that this is one of the things you can look at pretty Very, easily. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, suck at Northern Hemisphere people. <laughs> you can't see it. Uh, sorry, you know, we've got a few Northern Hemisphere mm-hmm. listeners, you know, we, we love you. We still love you. Yeah, we still love you. Um, but you've got Andromeda, so bugger off. That's right. Um, now, uh, what's special about the stars in this cluster? Because this is, this is a cluster that, you know, as I say, it's big, it's close. Yeah. Uh, it's been studied to the end of the Earth. So what, you would what's, think so, wouldn't yeah, you? <laughs> what's, so what's new? So what's new? So these, uh, these clusters, so M4 is, um, a type of cluster called a global cluster. There's, there's dozens, uh, orbiting our galaxy. Um, they're very, very old. So they're typically around 12 to 13 billion years old. Mm-hmm. So marginally younger than the universe itself. Um, so all of the stars in there um, trace back to pretty much the origins of the universe. So we're able to do a lot of really good science to trace um, 
what happened and how these clusters formed um, will tell us a lot about uh, how the galaxy formed, how our star formed and the planets, um, because it tells us a lot of uh, deep history. Mm. And so the important thing about these these clusters are is uh, originally we thought these clusters were about a million stars, which they are, uh, but we thought they were all born at the same time with the same chemical abundances that, that every star would pretty much be almost exactly the same. Okay. Um, what we realised about 30, 40 years ago was that that's not actually true. There's actually two groups of stars mixed together within these clusters. And so, which is, uh, on one side, it's something very, uh, not very good because it means that there's an extra factor in these clusters that we have to take <laughs> into account. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it means that we've got... Um, two groups of stars that are almost exactly the same except for a few details and then comparing those two groups of stars to each other um, which and they don't vary in a huge amount of factors um, might tell us a lot and that's what we found in this case hmm. we found that one group of these uh, these stars uh, the slightly older um, they have less sodium in them um, they're a bit more primordial you could say they're a bit more representative of the very first stars in the universe um, they follow what we would typically understand a star to do. It, would, it evolves through all of its different multiple phases of life and it, and it follows our um, uh, standard models of evolution very closely. Mm. Uh, what we found was that the, the second group that are a bit more peculiar, they have a bit more sodium than we'd expect, a bit less oxygen. Um, we ex- one of the ideas is that they were actually born a little bit later. Um, what we found was that those stars uh, behave very differently towards the end of its life. Okay. So it, it skips uh, sort of later phases of its evolution and dies earlier, um, which is not expected, and we don't, we're not still not really sure why that's happening. Now it's been a little while since I uh, did the equations that uh, required to do this. You know, my <laughs> days as in astrophysics are a little bit behind me, but. I don't remember there being another group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at the stuff you sent through, it's, you know, there was, there was a certain size element and component element of various stars. And from mm-hmm. that, you calculated exactly what happened in the yep. lifespan. And this is, this is, these predictions have been bared out, you know, no matter where we look pretty much mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. This group doesn't fit that model. So what does that mean? What does that mean? So pretty much, well, we're not really sure what it really means. It's very, very new. Um, this this effect was really only seen uh, for the first time about three years ago by one of my um, colleagues um, in a, a big nature paper he published, and it was very groundbreaking. Breaking. It was it was the first time we went, wait, what's happening in these stars? They're not doing what we thought mm. they were doing. Um, why is that the case? Um, since then, there's been a lot of work going on uh, by us and some other groups to try and observe more of these stars. To try and uh, the problem is that we, you know, we'd done one sample at the time and we only had one data point. Right. Mm-hmm. So we needed to observe multiple of these clusters to try and see, you know, are these this type of star failing to evolve uh, in other in other clusters or is it only this cluster? Mm-hmm. And it's painting a very interesting picture, um, the very unexpected one that this this effect. Or isn't isn't happening in every cluster. It's only happening in some, and not right. others. And to try and figure out why that is is actually surprisingly yeah, complicated. Yeah. We've got some ideas about why, uh, but we still there's a lot of work to do. Hmm. That's that's kind of what I wanted to ask. How much is 
um, our sense that this is an anomaly, the mm. result of the fact that it really is something mm-hmm. really odd going on? And how much is it that we just haven't had the time yet to apply this new technology more broadly? Is it possible that we're actually going to find that there are lots of really weird stars out there? We just haven't had the technology to, mm-hmm. to decipher their, their composition yet. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. I think that's completely valid because uh, our technology is advancing at such a rate that we're getting, uh, we're able to do much, much better science than we have in the past. And we're seeing some interesting things, some things that we didn't expect. And I think a lot of it, you know, we're calling it an anomaly because we haven't seen it before. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very likely to be that it's just we just haven't had the technology to actually to see that effect um, up until now. It's kind of like, I mean, the extrasolar planet stuff started off the same way where there exactly, was a yeah. couple and then all of a sudden now oh, we've all got them. Yeah. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. Um, you, you have the new instruments, for, you know, 400 stars at a time. I mean, how does that compare to sort of the best international um, mm. scenarios? And as I say, I mean, yeah. ours is in the southern hemisphere. So in a way, even if there was better, in the, you know, it's like who yes. cares mm. because <laughs> you, can't, you can't look through the earth. But mm. are we up there now with the best in the world? I think we are. Um, my opinion is uh, definitely we are. And I think um, this paper of, of mine and my colleagues that we published um, just a couple of months ago mm. um, really shows that, um, really shows that, you know, we can we can bring the A game with all the other big telescopes. There's um, some really big telescopes out in Chile. Um, mm. that we've used in the past um, that do some really good science. They're eight-meter telescopes. Um, you don't need to observe as long with those, but they're able to do uh, about 120 stars at a time, okay. whereas we've you know, got to sort of step up on that, uh, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. nice. Take that, Julie. Um, yeah. now, now, what happens next? Because, you know, there's mm. some really great... Uh, tel- international telescopes uh, mm. coming on, you know, the James Webb telescopes coming online, the Hubble's still going and has just been reissued with th- mm. further funding to continue. I- is the goal here then to take your data and, and grab a few of these stars in, in some of these clusters and say, okay, it's time to have a really good look mm. with one of the space telescopes? Is that, is that the next step or with the te- way off? With the space telescopes, it's it's a lot harder because uh, these instruments don't really exist on the space, space telescopes. Mm. Um, my understanding is that... Uh, <coughs> The type of technology that we're needing to use don't exist on any space telescopes. I'm not really sure why. I'm not sure if that's you, it's just you can't put them on it, or if they just haven't got the space for it. They've got yeah. other uses for these telescopes. Yeah. Um, so ground-based um, telescopes are still very important. They'll be very important into the future. Mm. Um, I don't think in any you know, it'll be a long time before space 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 telescopes sort of take over ground-based in, in a lot of areas. Yeah. Um, we've got some huge ground-based being built at the moment. We've got a 30-metre telescope, an extremely large telescope being built, um, and they'll have similar instruments on it, and they'll be able to do some amazing stuff. Yeah. Oh, look, it's Ben, it's great to hear that uh, Australia's up there. I mean, we, you know, we've led astronomy in so many areas and, and, and ground-based tracking with the Deep Space Network and so forth here in Australia for, for so long, and it's it's one of the areas, fortunately, of science that's still getting getting mm. some resource, which, which is good, and hopefully will continue and and that telescope's been around for I've been to that telescope it's been around for a long time yeah. so it's nice to um nice to hear that, that it's still going strong we're whacking new stuff on it and it's uh, it's a it's a beautiful instrument beautiful instrument congratulations on the work and um hopefully as i say within a few years this will be like the uh, you know every globular cluster's got these you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. um you know it's it's hard to imagine reasons why that would not be ca- the case so yeah, um yeah. good luck with that continued search and um, have fun with the new instrument and uh, <laughs> well, hope hope you can keep up with all the data because i'm sure it's yeah. coming. 
coming, oh, I've got lost, yeah. <laughs> coming in fast. Ben McLean's from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University and using the Anglo-Australian Observatory, which is one of this country's best instruments. You're listening to 3RRR. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the mythical beast known as the clinical researcher. <laughs> They're out there, folks, and there's a conference coming up to talk about them, and they are a very interesting species indeed, and you're going to learn all about it in just a moment. Now, before we go to the music, though, Chris KP has some stuff to give away. I do, I do. Uh, so, as, as you may have heard, listen to the uh, to the station this morning. Emma Russick um, has an album out called "In a New State." She's also playing uh, during Test Pattern on the twentieth of July live um, at Triple R, and we have four double passes to give away. So, if you are a subscriber and you want to hang out at Triple R and watch Emma Russick do awesome stuff on the twentieth of July, starting at six twenty-five PM, then call us on nine three double eight one zero two seven, and I will now dash out and answer the phone. Do you need a pen? Um, I need a pen pal. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't quite come out the way I was expecting. I know. Uh, we're going to take for some, uh, break for some music while Chris runs out, and um, we'll be observing that closely because he rarely moves faster than a sloth. Anyway, you're on Triple R. Three. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. Uh, you have been listening to 3 Triple R. Uh, if you liked that song, it was The Sevens with All About You. Chris KP, did you give away all those tickets? Uh, no, there's a few left, um, yeah. but I got, I got rid of some. So well, it's, it's good effort. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you're not too bad at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to have a skill. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the studio, we have Professor Ingrid Schaeffer. Ingrid is a paediatric neurologist and physician scientist from the University of Melbourne and Vice President of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. And alongside her is Edward Cliff, who is a final year medical student at Monash University. And he's just completed his Bachelor of Medical Science of Honours in diabetes physiology at the University of Oxford. I've heard of that place. Uh, Ingrid, Edward, welcome to the studio. And you're, you're mother and son too, I should say. Yep, strangely yep. enough we are. Yep, we're a team. You're a t- <laughs> so you say that, but Ingrid may not. <laughs> She's like, God, finish your degree, would you? Get off my back, you know, get out of there. Now, um, we've, we've got you in because we wanted to talk about the whole issue of the clinician scientists. So, Ingrid, I might start with you because there's this newly formed academy. It's very important and it's there to support the clinician scientists. I don't think a lot of people know what this phrase actually means. I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, clinician scientist is a really cool career. It's exciting and it allows you to bring together your clinical skills and as well as that have a second part of your career, if you like, as a scientist or researcher. Mm -hmm. It's not just clinical research, though. You can be a clinician and do your science in the lab. You can do it on rats or you can do it with people. You could do public health science. You can Mm -hmm. be a surgeon. So it really adds a whole extra level to your career and a clinician doesn't just have to be a doctor though this the conference we're uh, running is aimed at med students and junior doctors and fellows and PhD students it really anyone can go because it can be you can be a psychologist a speech pathologist a physio anybody mm. who wishes to have a research aspect to their career mm. now um, Edward you, you in particular are coming through you, you, you've just finished the, the work at Oxford and you're you're in that pathway of becoming a clinician scientist I mean what 
what would possibly possess a person to try and take on two jobs at once? I mean, it does. I mean, whenever you hear a clinician talk about their, well, you know, it's very busy. You talk about, you hear a researcher, you know, Jen's here, you know, they're very busy. Um, this is both. I mean, what's the advantage of this pathway? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not just the busyness of both careers. It's also the training pathways of both. Mm, yeah. Um, it'll take me 15, 20 or more years to get there, but. So you're happy graduating at 51. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we go. It's, it's actually, it's, it's funny, I joke, but it's, it's mid to late 30s, isn't it? Well, um, I mean, I always say it took me 21 years from finishing school to handing in my PhD. I, I had two boys on the way, which was well uh, worth you know, doing. Yeah, you, you made, some, made some good stuff. <laughs> it's paying off now. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's being able to see the sort of really meaningful difference you can make to a small number of patients' lives in, in seeing them day to day in, mm. in the clinic and mm. hospital and seeing the huge improvement those people can make, yep. but also making, I guess, a smaller improvement to a much broader number of people's lives through our understanding of science. So, mm. uh, being able to do both of those things at once is what really appeals to me that you're always learning, you're always asking new que- questions and trying to answer new questions as well as the sort of micro really, um, day-to-day stuff that you're doing with patients in hospital yeah there's there's got to be an assumption out there by a lot of people that when they go to somewhere like for example a new new comprehensive cancer center which has opened up in in melbourne you know amazing facility that they're going to get this they're not going to get a clinician who's you know keeping up to date but not really engaged with the research i mean presumably there's a there's an assumption from some patients that this this happens all the time well, yeah, I mean, it depends where you go, but really it's, it's such a hard challenge to find the time, the mm. resources, you know, it's very hard to, to get grant funding, but the time in your week, um, it's, it's not easy to do both. And so not every clinician does research. And I guess we're trying to encourage, uh, both junior and we've also got some senior clinicians coming along who presumably are interested in, yeah. in doing more research. Ingrid, just, uh, for a moment, let's talk about the academy because this is a, this is a new structure. Um, what, what's its role? I mean, how is it there to, I suppose, support the clinician researcher in this country? Well, the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences is a newly formed academy to give an authoritative voice to health and medical science research. Uh, and it really has got the leaders in this, in these domains in, involved in the academy. Our president is Professor Ian Fraser, AC, mm. who's coming down from Queensland to speak at the symposium next Saturday Um, and the idea is to also grow the next generation of leaders in health and medical research and this is part of that um, aim which is to uh, get the next generation of clinician scientists and excite people, show them that instead of seeing patients day in day out you can have three careers in a day and mm. it's really fun, you have friends all over the world it's it's just such an exciting career. Yeah and, and there's certainly I know my, my wife has um, uh, autoimmune disease and she was at a clinician with a clinician that was not research engaged and she's now we've moved her to one who was research and there's a massive difference just in the just in the mindset i think of Absolutely. A, clinician researcher. I think a research career a phd teaches you to think differently mm. and that then informs your practice all the time and it also helps you to be at the cutting edge so if there's a new treatment you're on it yeah and you can also then engage people in that and you're well connected to help get your patients the best treatment so it's a completely different way of thinking it is a challenging career uh, it's hard to fit it all into a day. I certainly can't fit it into 24 mm. hours. Yep. But it it's makes you think differently and it keeps you excited for your whole career, whereas medicine itself can become a bit humdrum day in, day out. The patients are fantastic, but the actual medicine, you know, changes incrementally. But when you're at mm. the cutting edge, you help it to change.
change. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the the conference that you guys are uh, here to discuss. Really, I mean, it's called Life as a Clinician Scientist: The Best Best of Both Worlds. Um, what sort of things will people get at this conference? I mean, you know, I've been to some conferences. Yeah, oh, I love my love. Yeah, it's so great my career. But you know, presumably there's some depth here that you have to go into because you're you're talking to medical students, you're talking to researchers, you've got to give them something really heavy. Yeah, so through the academy, we've been really fortunate to access some really high-level researchers. They're mm-hmm. all pretty game-changing in their fields. But the other special thing is we're bringing people from different hospitals, different universities from across uh, the state and some interstate um, to talk together about the different opportunities in clinician, in clinical uh, in research, clinical science. And the um, there are surgeons, we've got GPs, we've got uh, intensive of care physicians. We've got a whole breadth of different types of um, specialists and generalists who who all do different types of research. And so uh, the day will uh, cover a few different areas. We'll start looking at the stories and the uh, what really uh, enables clinicians to take their clinical work and how that informs their research. What, mm-hmm. what, why it really is so special to be able to see those situations and take them and answer, ask and answer research questions. Mm. Then we'll look at uh, different areas um, of clinical research and uh, there'll be some skills workshops, uh, how to get your research published, how to uh, structure and frame a research question, how to find a... um, uh, how to give a good talk or a good research talk. Yeah, that's a a good one. Yeah. Few people need that, let me tell you. That's right. (laughs) I I give those skills programs myself and I'm only one person. There's only so many people you can train. So it's good to hear that that's everything. And the other really special thing is every speaker will have a small uh, part of their talk dedicated to talking about their research. Mm. So by the end of the day, we'll have lots of different snapshots and vignettes of what all the different researchers are doing. But not just their research, their journey. And I think that's a really important message. I don't think it's a rush. You said you'll be 51. Who cares? As long as you've had a great time along the way. That's right, absolutely. And you've done good things and you've learned good skills, it doesn't matter. So I think one of the issues, one of the, the messages is it's a journey, enjoy the journey. Yeah, it sounds good. Now, is there a website that people can go to? Because everyone can go to this. Don't, you don't have to be a clinician. Yeah, no, it's cliniciansciences.org. Yeah, yeah. yeah. cliniciansciences.org. Jeez, even I can remember that. My social media friend here. <laughs> <laughs> nice um, guys, thanks uh, so much for coming in, Ingrid. Thanks for bringing your offspring. It's very helpful. Um, I hope the conference goes well. This is an area that the Australia really needs to get behind. So um, well done putting it together and I hope it, hope it uh, is successful. Thanks. Thanks. Professor Ingrid Sheffer is the Vice President of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences and a neurologist at the University of Melbourne. And Edward Cliff, her son, is a final year medical student at Monash University and has just completed his Bachelor of Medical Science at the University of Oxford. We're almost out of time here. Dr. Jen, uh, Chris KP. This goes too fast. I know. We've, well, we we jammed a lot of guests in. now. Oh, the extra leap second to Chris. We'll take it on the next next program and we'll make it good in the uh, in January. I think uh, I think we could probably do that. Uh, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith. I can see Matt Stedman. I think he was away for a while, but he's managed to drag his butt back into the studio today for a show, which is good because Cam uh, relies on him very hey, heavily. Dr. Shane, very just, heavily. just quickly, happy birthday, Nikola Tesla. Is it? Oh, apparently, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, and a big hello to, to Bell. Uh, no, yes. he was a big celebrator of Tesla's birthday. <laughs> oh, big time. Yeah, yeah, big time, big time friends. Um, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R, folks. We're going to be back again next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, science is everywhere. And until uh, we speak, have a great Sunday and a great week, and we'll chat again on Sunday next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.